13. Northeasts that have been aroused into a semblance of their old life. The cars disdain the smaller establishments, and run such long distances that only a few houses along the road derive much benefit from them. For many their days are numbered, and it may be full to describe them before. Like four-wheelers and handsome cabs, they have quite vanished away. Chapters I Old Municipal Buildings No class of buildings has suffered more than the old town halls of our country boroughs. Many of these towns have become decayed and all their ancient glories have departed. They were once flourishing places in the palmy days of the cloth trade, and could boast of fairs and markets and a considerable number of inhabitants and wealthy merchants, but the tide of trade has flowed elsewhere. The invention of steam and complex machinery necessitating proximity to coal fields has turned its course elsewhere, to the smoky regions of Yorkshire and Lancashire, and the old town has lost its prosperity and its power. Its charter has gone, it can boast of no municipal corporation, hence the town hall is scarcely needed save for some itinerant thespians, an occasional public meeting, or as a storehouse of rubbish, it begins to fall into decay, and the decayed town is not rich enough, or public-spirited enough, to prop its weakened timbers, for the sake of the safety of the public it has to come down, on the other hand, an influx of prosperity often dooms the aged town hall to destruction. It vanishes before a wave of prosperity. The borough has enlarged its borders. It has become quite a great town and transacts much business. The old shops have given place to grand emporiums with large plate glass windows, wherein are exhibited the most recent fashions of London and Paris, and motor cars can be bought, and all is very brisk and up-to-date. The old town hall is now deemed a very poor and inadequate building. It is small, inconvenient, and unsuited to the taste of the municipal councillors whose ideas have expanded with their trade, the mayor and corporation meet, and decide to build a brand new town hall replete with every luxury and convenience, the old must vanish, and yet, how picturesque these ancient council chambers are, they usually stand in the center of the marketplace, and have an undercroft, the upper story resting on pillars, beneath this shelter the market women display their wares and fix their stalls on market days, and there you will perhaps see the fire engine, at least the old primitive one which was in use before a grand steam fire engine had been purchased and housed in a station of its own. The building has high want gables and mullion windows, a tiled roof mellowed with age, and a finely wrought vein, which is a credit to the skill of the local blacksmith. It is a sad pity that this thing of beauty should have to be pulled down and be replaced by a modern building which is not always creditable to the architectural taste of the age. A law should be passed that no old town hall should be pulled down and that all new ones should be erected on a different site. No more fitting place could be found for the storage of the antiquities of the town, the relics of its old municipal life, sketches of its old buildings that had vanished, and portraits of its worthies, than the ancient building which has for so long kept watch and ward over its destinies and been the scene of most of the chief events connected with its history. Happily several have been spared, and they speak to us of the old methods of municipal government, of the merchant guilds, composed of rich merchants and clothiers, who met there and do transact their common business. The guild hall was the center of the trade of the town and of its social and commercial life. An amazing amount of business was transacted therein. If you study the records of any ancient pearl you will discover that the pulse of life beat fast in the old guild hall. There the merchants met to talk over their affairs and drink their guild. There the mayor came with the recorder or steward to hold his courts and to issue all processes as attachmentes summons, distresses, precepts, warrants, subsidies, 
recognizances, etc. The guild hall was like a living thing. It held property, had a treasury, received the payments of freemen, levied fines on foreigners who were not of the guild, administered justice, settled quarrels between the brethren of the guild, made loans to merchants, heard the complaints of the aggrieved, held feasts, promoted loyalty to the sovereign, and insisted strongly on every burgess that he should do his best to promote the common weal and profit of ye said gilda. It required loyalty and secrecy from the members of the common council assembled within its walls, and no one was allowed to disclose to the public its decisions and decrees. The skilled hall was a living thing, like the brook it sang, men may come and men may go, but I flow on forever. Mayor succeeded mayor, and Burgess followed Burgess, but the old guild hall lived on, the central mainspring of the borough's life. Therein were stored the archives of the town, the charters won, bargained for, and granted by kings and queens, which gave them privileges of trade, authority to hold fairs and markets, liberty to convey and sell their goods in other towns. Therein were preserved the civic plate, the maces that gave dignity to their proceedings. The cups bestowed by royal or noble personage or by the affluent members of the guild in token of their affection for their town and fellowship. Therein they assembled to don their robes to march in procession to the town church to hear mass, or in later times a sermon, and then refreshed themselves with a feast at the charge of the hall. The portraits of the worthies of the town, of royal and distinguished patrons, adorned the walls and the old guild hall preached daily lessons to the townsfolk to uphold the dignity and promote the welfare of the borough, and good feeling and the sense of brotherhood among themselves. We give an illustration of the town hall of Shrewsbury, a notable building and well worthy of study as a specimen of a municipal building erected at the close of the 16th century. The style is that of the Renaissance with the usual mixture of debased Gothic and classic details, but the general effect is imposing, the arches and parapet are especially characteristic. An inscription over the arch at the north end records, the XBTH day of June was this building begun, William Jones and Thomas Charlton, gent, then bailiffs, and was erected and covered in their time, 1595, a full description of this building is given in Canon Auden's history of the town, he states that, under the clock is the statue of Richard Duke of York, father of Edward Ivy, which was removed from the old Welsh bridge at its demolition in 1791. This is flanked by an inscription recording this fact on the one side, and on the other by the three leopards' heads which are the arms of the town. On the other end of the building is a sundial, and also a sculptured angel holding a shield on which are the arms of England and France. This was removed from the gate of the town, which stood at the foot of the castle. On its demolition in 1825, the principal entrance is on the west, and over this are the arms of Queen Elizabeth and the date 1596. It will be noticed that one of the supporters is not the unicorn, but the red dragon of Wales. The interior is now partly devoted to various municipal offices, and partly used as the mayor's court, the roof of which still retains its old character. It was formerly known as the old market hall, but the business of the market has been transferred to the huge but tasteless building of brick erected at the top of Mart Hall in 1869 the erection of which caused the destruction of several picturesque old houses which can ill be spared. Serenkister possesses a magnificent town hall, a stately perpendicular building, which stands out well against the noble church tower of the same period. It has a gateway flanked by buttresses and arcades on each side and two upper stories with pierced battlements at the top which are adorned with richly floriated pinnacles. A great charm of the building are the three oriel windows extending from the top of the ground floor division to the foot of the battlements. 
The surface of the wall of the facade is cut into panels, and niches for statues adorn the faces of the four buttresses. The whole forms a most elaborate piece of perpendicular work of unusual character. We understand that it needs repair and is in some danger. The aid of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings has been called in and their report has been sent to the civic authorities, who will, we hope, adopt their recommendations and deal kindly and tenderly with this most interesting structure. Another famous guild hall is in danger, that at Norwich, it has even been suggested that it should be pulled down and a new one erected, but happily this wild scheme has been abandoned, old buildings like not new inventions, just as old people fear to cross the road lest they should be run over by a motor car, Norwich Guild Hall does not approve of electric tram cars, which run close to its north side and cause its old bones to vibrate in a most uncomfortable fashion. You can perceive how much it objects to these horrid cars by feeling the vibration of the walls when you are standing on the level of the street or on the parapet. You will not therefore be surprised to find ominous cracks in the old walls, and the roof is none too safe. The large span having tried severely the strength of the old oak beams, it is a very ancient building. The crypt under the east end, vaulted in brickwork, probably dating from the 13th century, while the main building was erected in the 15th century. The walls are well built, three feet in thickness, and constructed of uncut flints. The east end is enriched with diaper work and checkers of stone and nap flint. Some new buildings have been added on the south side within the last century. There is a clock turret at the east end, erected in 1850 at the cost of the then mayor. Evidently the roof was giving the citizens anxiety at that time, as the good donor presented the clock tower on condition that the roof of the council chamber should be repaired. This famous old building has witnessed many strange scenes, such as the burning of old dames who were supposed to be witches, the execution of criminals and conspirators, the savage conflicts of citizens and soldiers in days of rioting and unrest. These good citizens of Norwich used to add considerably to the excitement of the place by their turbulence and eagerness for fighting. The crypt of the town hall is just old enough to have heard of the burning of the cathedral and monastery by the citizens in 1272 and to have seen the ringleaders executed, often was there fighting in the city, and the same old building witnessed in 1549 a great riot, chiefly directed against the religious reforms and change of worship introduced by the first prayer book of Edward VI, it was rather amusing to see Parker, afterwards Archbishop of Canterbury, addressing the rioters from a platform, under which stood the spearmen of Kit, the leader of the riot, who took delight in pricking the feet of the orator with their spears as he poured forth his impassioned eloquence. In an important city like Norwich the Guild Hall has played an important part in the making of England, and is worthy in its old age of the tenderest and most reverent treatment, and even of the removal from its proximity of the objectionable electric tram cars. As we are at Norwich it would be well to visit another old house, which though not a municipal building, is a unique specimen of the domestic architecture of a Norwich citizen in days when, as Dr. Jessup remarks, there was no coal to burn in the grate, no gas to enlighten the darkness of the night, no potatoes to eat, no tea to drink, and when men believed that the sun moved round the earth once in 365 days, and would have been ready to burn the culprit who should dare to maintain the contrary, it is called Stranger's Hall, a most interesting medieval mansion which had never ceased to be an inhabited house for at least 500 years till it was purchased in 1899 by Mr. Leonard Bolingbroke, who rescued it from decay, and permits the public to inspect its beauties, the crypt and cellars, and possibly the kitchen and buttery, were portions of the original house owned in 1358 by Robert Hurdigray.
Burgess in Parliament and Bailiff of the City, and the present hall, with its groin porch and oriel window, was erected later over the original 14th century cellars. It was inhabited by a succession of merchants and chief men of Norwich, and at the beginning of the 16th century passed into the family of Southern. The merchant's mark of Nicholas Southern is painted on the roof of the hall. You can see this fine hall with its screen and gallery and beautifully carved woodwork, the present Jacobean staircase and gallery, big oak window, and doorways leading into the garden are later additions made by Francis Cook, grocer of Norwich, who was mayor of the city in 1627. The house probably took its name from the family of a strange, who settled in Norwich in the 16th century. In 1610 the Southerns conveyed the property to Cyril Strange Mordant, who sold it to the above-mentioned Francis Cook. Sir Joseph Payne came into possession just before the restoration, and we see his initials, with those of his wife Emma, and the date 1659, in the spandrels of the fireplaces in some of the rooms. This beautiful memorial of the merchant princes of Norwich, like many other old houses, fell into decay. It is most pleasant to find that it has now fallen into such tender hands, that its old timbers have been saved and preserved by the generous care of its present owner, who has thus earned the gratitude of all who love antiquity. Sometimes buildings erected for quite different purposes have been used as guild halls. There was one at Reading, a guild hall near the Holy Brook in which the women washed their clothes, and made so much noise by beating their battledores, the usual style of washing in those days that the mayor and his worthy brethren were often disturbed in their deliberations. So they petitioned the king to grant them the use of the deserted church of the Grey Friars Monastery lately dissolved in the town. This request was granted, and in the place where the friars sang their services and preached, the mayor and purchases drank their guilt and held their banquets. When they got tired of that building they filched part of the old grammar school from the boys, making an upper story, wherein they held their council meetings. The old church then was turned into a prison, but now happily it is a church again. At last the corporation had a town hall of their own, which they decorated with the initials SPQ or Romanus and reading and C's conveniently beginning with the same letter. Now they have a grand new town hall, which provides every accommodation for this growing town. The Newbury Town Hall, a Georgian structure, has just been demolished. It was erected in 1740-1742, taking the place of an ancient and interesting guild hall built in 1611 in the center of the marketplace. The councillors were startled one day by the collapse of the ceiling of the hall, and when we last saw the chamber tons of heavy plaster were lying on the floor. The roof was unsound, the adjoining street too narrow for the hundred motors that raced past the dangerous corners in twenty minutes on the day of the Newbury races, so there was no help for the old building, its fate was sealed, and it was bound to come down. But the town possesses a very charming cloth hall, which tells of the palmy days of the Newbury cloth makers or clothiers, as they were called, of Jack of Newbury, the famous John Winchcombe, or Snellwood, whose story is told in Delonius' humorous old black-letter pamphlet, entitled The Most Pleasant and Delectable History of John Winchcombe, otherwise called Jackie of Newbury, published in 1596. He is said to have furnished 100 men fully equipped for the king's service at Flodden Field, and mightily pleased Queen Catherine, who gave him a rich chain of gold and wished that God would give the king many such clothiers. You can see part of the house of this worthy, who died in 1519. Fuller stated in the 17th century that this brick and timber residence had been converted into 16 clothiers' houses. It is now partly occupied by the Jack of Newbury Inn, 
a 15th century gable with an oriel window and carved barge board still remains, and you can see a massive stone chimney piece in one of the original chambers where Jack used to sit and receive his friends. Some carvings also have been discovered in an old house showing what is thought to be a carved portrait of the clothier. It bears the initials JW and another panel has a raised shield suspended by strap and buckle with a monogram IS presumably John Snellwood. He was married twice, and the portrait busts on each side are supposed to represent his two wives. Another carving represents the Blessed Trinity under the figure of a single head with three faces within a wreath of oak leaves with floriated spandrels. We should like to pursue the subject of these Newberry clothiers and see Thomas Dalman's house, which is so fine and large and cost so much money that his work Piopla used to sing a doggerel ditty, Lord have mercy upon us miserable sinners. Thomas Dalman has built a new house and turned away all his spinners. History of Newberry. By Walter Money. FSA. The old cloth hall which has led to this digression has been recently restored, and is now a museum. The ancient town of Wallingford famous for its castle, had a guild hall with cells under it, the earliest mention of which dates back to the reign of Edward I.I., and occurs constantly as the place wherein the bird moats were held. The present town hall was erected in 1670 a picturesque building on stone pillars. This open space beneath the town hall was formerly used as a corn market, and so continued until the present corn exchange was erected half a century ago. The slated roof is gracefully curved, is crowned by a good vein and a neat dormer window juts out on the side facing the marketplace. Below this is a large Renaissance window opening onto a balcony once orders can address the crowds assembled in the marketplace at election times. The walls of the hall are hung with portraits of the worthies and benefactors of the town, including one of Archbishop Log. A mayor's feast was, before the passing of the Municipal Corporations Act, a great occasion in most of our boroughs, the expenses of which were defrayed by the rates. The upper chamber in the Wallingford Town Hall was formerly a kitchen, with a huge fireplace, where mighty joints and fat capons were roasted for the banquet. Outside you can see a ring of light-colored stones, called the Bull Ring, where bulls, provided at the cost of the corporation, were baited. Until 1840 our Berkshire town of Wokingham was famous for its annual bull baiting on Street Thomas's Day. A good man, one George Stavern, was once scored by a bull, so he vented his rage upon the whole bovine race, and left a charity for the providing of bulls to be baited on the festival of the saint, the meat afterwards to be given to the poor of the town. The meat is still distributed, but the bulls are no longer baited. Here at Wokingham there was a picturesque old town hall with an open undercroft, supported on pillars, but the townsfolk must needs pull it down and erect an unsightly brick building in its stead. It contains some interesting portraits of royal and distinguished folk dating from the time of Charles I but how the town became possessed of these paintings no man knows. Another of our Berkshire towns can boast of a fine town hall that has not been pulled down like so many of its fellows. It is not so old as some, but is in itself a memorial of some vandalism, as it occupies the site of the old market cross, a thing of rare beauty, beautifully carved and erected in Mary's reign but ruthlessly destroyed by Waller and his troopers during the Civil War period. Upon the ground on which it stood 34 years later in 1677 the Abingdon folk reared their fine town hall, its style resembles that of Nigel Jones, and it has an open undercroft to kindly shelter from the weather for market women. Tall and graceful it dominates the marketplace, and it is crowned with a pretty cupola and a fine vein. You can find a still more interesting hall in the town, part of the old abbey the gateway with its adjoining rooms, 
now used as the county hall, and there you will see as fine a collection of plate and as choice an array of royal portraits as ever fell to the lot of a provincial county town. One of these is a Gensborough. One of the reasons why Abingdon has such a good store of silver plate is that according to their charter the corporation has to pay a small sum yearly to their high stewards, and these gentlemen the Bowyers of Radley and the Earls of Abingdon have been accustomed to restore their fees to the town in the shape of a gift of plate. We might proceed to examine many other of these interesting buildings, but a volume would be needed for the purpose of recording them all. Too many of the ancient ones have disappeared and their places taken by modern, and sightly, though more convenient buildings. We may mention the salvage of the old market house at Winster, in Derbyshire, which has been rescued by that admirable National Trust for places of historic interest or natural beauty which descends like an angel of mercy on many a threatened and abandoned building and preserves it for future generations. The Winster Market House is of great age, the lower part is doubtless as old as the 13th century, and the upper part was added in the 17th. Winster was at one time an important place, its markets were famous, and this building must for very many years have been the center of the commercial life of a large district, but as the market has diminished in importance, the old market house has fallen out of repair and its condition has caused anxiety to antiquaries for some time past. Local help has been forthcoming under the auspices of the National Trust, in which it is now vested for future preservation, though not a town hall. We may here record the saving of a very interesting old building, the Palace Gate House at Maidstone, the entire demolition of which was proposed. It is part of the old residence of the Archbishops of Canterbury, near the perpendicular Church of All Saints, on the banks of the Medway whose house at Maidstone added dignity to the town and helped to make it the important place it was. The palace was originally the residence of the rector of Maidstone, but was given up in the 13th century to the archbishop. The oldest part of the existing building is at the north end, where some 15th century windows remain. Some of the rooms have good old paneling and open stone fireplaces of the 15th century date, but decay has fallen on the old building. Ivy is allowed to grow over it and checked its main stems clinging to the walls and disturbing the stones. What has begun to soak into the walls through the decayed stone sills? Happily the gatehouse has been saved, and we doubt not that the enlightened town council will do its best to preserve this interesting building from further decay. The finest early Renaissance municipal building is the picturesque guild hall at Exeter, with its richly ornamented front projecting over the pavement and carried on arches. The market house at Rothwell is a beautifully designed building erected by Sir Thomas Tresham in 1577. Being a recusant, he was much persecuted for his religion, and never succeeded in finishing the work. We give an illustration of the quaint little market house at Wymondham, with its open space beneath, and the upper story supported by stout posts and brackets. It is entirely built of timber and plaster. Stout posts support the upper floor, beneath which is a covered market. The upper chamber is reached by a quaint rude wooden staircase. Chipping Canton can boast of a handsome odd log market house, built of stone, having five arches with three gables on the long sides, and two arches with gables over each on the short sides. There are mullioned windows under each gable. The city of Salisbury could at one time boast of several halls of the old guilds which flourished there. There was a charming island of old houses near the cattle market, which had all disappeared. They were most picturesque and interesting buildings, and we regret to have to record that new half-timbered structures have been erected in their place with sham beams, and boards nailed onto the walls to represent themes. One of the monstrosities of modern architectural art, 
The old joiner's hall has happily been saved by the National Trust. It has a very attractive 16th century facade, though the interior has been much altered. Until the early years of the 19th century it was the hall of the guild or company of the joiners of the city of New Saroom. Such are some of the old municipal buildings of England. There are many others which might have been mentioned. It is a sad pity that so many have disappeared and been replaced by modern and interesting structures. If a new town hall be required in order to keep pace with the increasing dignity of an important borough, the corporation can at least preserve their ancient municipal hall which has so long watched over the fortunes of the town and shared in its joys and sorrows, and seek a fresh site for their new home without destroying the old. Chapter XII crosses a careful study of the ordnance maps of certain counties of England reveals the extraordinary number of ancient crosses which are scattered over the length and breadth of the district. Local names often suggest the existence of an ancient cross, such as Blackrod, or Blackrood, Oakenrod, Crosby, Cross Hall, Cross Hillock. But if the student sally forth to seek the sacred symbol of the Christian faith, he will often be disappointed. The cross has vanished and even the recollection of its existence has completely passed away. Happily not all have disappeared, and in our travels we shall be able to discover many of these interesting specimens of ancient art, but not a tithe of those that once existed are now to be discovered. Many causes have contributed to their disappearance. The Puritans waged insensate war against the cross. It was in their eyes an idol which must be destroyed. They regarded them as popish superstitions and objected greatly to the custom of carrying the course towards the church all garnished with crosses, which they set down by the way at every cross, and there all of them devoutly on their knees make prayers for the dead. Iconoclastic mobs tore down the sacred symbol in blind fury. In the summer of 1643 Parliament ordered that all crucifixes, crosses, images, and pictures should be obliterated or otherwise destroyed and during the same year the two houses passed a resolution for the destruction of all crosses throughout the kingdom. They ordered Sir Robert Harlow to superintend the leveling to the ground of Street Paul's Cross, Charing Cross, and that in Cheapside, and a contemporary print shows the populace busily engaged in tearing down the last. Ladders are placed against the structure, workmen are busy hammering the figures, and a strong rope is attached to the actual cross on the summit and eager hands are dragging it down. Similar scenes were enacted in many other towns, villages, and cities of England, and the wonder is that any crosses should have been left, but a vast number did remain in order to provide further opportunities for vandalism and wanton mischief, and probably quite as many have disappeared during the 18th and 19th centuries as those which were destroyed by Puritan iconoclasts, when trade and commerce developed, and villages grew into towns, and sleepy hollows became hives of industry. The old market places became inconveniently small, and market crosses with their usually accompanying stocks and pillories were swept away as useless obstructions to traffic. Thus complaints were made with regard to the market place at Colne. There was no room for the coaches to turn. Idlers congregated on the steps of the cross and interfered with the business of the place. It was pronounced a nuisance, and in 1882 was swept away. Manchester Market Cross existed until 1816 when for the sake of utility and increased space it was removed. A stately Jacobean proclamation cross remained at Salford until 1824. The Preston Cross, or rather obelisk, consisting of a clustered Gothic column, 31 feet high, standing on a lofty pedestal which rested on three steps, was taken down by an act of vandalism in 1853. The Covel Cross at Lancaster shared its fate, 
being destroyed in 1826 by the justices when they purchased the house now used as the judge's lodgings. A few years ago it was rebuilt as a memorial of the accession of King Edward VII. Report of the State of Lancashire in 1590 Chatham Society. Volume XCVI. Page 5. Ancient Crosses of Lancashire. By Henry Taylor. Individuals too, as well as corporations, have taken a hand in the overthrow of crosses. There was a wretch named Wilkinson, vicar of Gooseneg, Lancashire, who delighted in their destruction. He was a zealous Protestant, and on account of his fame as a prophet of evil his deeds were not interfered with by his neighbors. He used to foretell the deaths of persons obnoxious to him, and unfortunately several of his prophecies were fulfilled, and he earned the dreaded character of a wizard. No one dared to prevent him, and with his own hands he pulled down several of these venerable monuments. Some drunken men in the early years of the 19th century pulled down the old market cross at Rochdale. There was a cross on the Bowling Green at Wally in the 17th century, the fall of which is described by a cavalier, William Blundell. In 1642, when some gentlemen came to use the bowling green they found their game interfered with by the fallen cross. A strong, powerful man was induced to remove it. He reared it, and tried to take it away by resting it from edge to edge. But his foot slipped, down he fell, and the cross falling upon him crushed him to death. A neighbor immediately he heard the news was filled with apprehension of a similar fate, and confessed that he and the deceased had thrown down the cross. It was considered a dangerous act to remove a cross, though the hope of discovering treasure beneath it often urged men to essay the task. A farmer once removed an old boundary stone, thinking it would make a good, buttery stone, but the results were dire. Pot. 